0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named July, and July was in a controlling relationship with a physical abuser. It's a story of anxious attachment, communication manipulation, avoiding confrontation, toxic masculinity, sexual coercion, and the support of your friends. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick and with me today we have July. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. How are you?
0: I am doing well, and for those of you that want to be a guest on our show like July is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Read all the instructions. There's a lot of instructions. Either send us an email at at gmail.com or press the Submit button on the Guest Form page after you fill it in. And today's story has a couple of trigger warnings. July's story has a physical abuse, sexual abuse, sexual coercion that we discussed. So if this is not for you, please turn this episode off. So that is the trigger warning for today. And a really big thank you to uh, July for being here because... Uh, I like having on our show uh, therapists, people in the mental health field, just to show that this can happen to anyone and that there's no shame that um, these things happen, that you're you're in abusive relationships. So now with uh, that being said, um, I just want to thank July uh, one more time for being here. And now, without further ado, July... The floor is now yours.
1: Okay. Um, so I'm July. I grew up in Palo Alto and then moved to San Francisco um, later on. But um, to start talking about, you know, how I grew up in my family, um, I grew up as an only child. Um, My parents were together. They were loving, hardworking, middle-class. They owned their own business and they did everything they could to provide for me. Um, When I think about my past, I think about home being a safe and nurturing environment. Um, My mom is very much so a caretaker and really both of My mom and my dad normalized showing emotions. Um, My mom always shows her emotions. She can't really help it. Um, But it it was safe. It was safe to do. Um, I was close with both of them. And something they really stressed was the importance of education. So they ensured that I was in the right school districts, um, going to the best schools I could. And would drive me, you know, pretty long ways to get me to the right schools. I was raised to be a strong, independent woman. Um, My family was and is very liberal. They always empowered me to be a woman who was independent and, you know, could stand on her own two feet. And something that my mom always stressed was my credit score. And having a savings account. Um, She always told me, you don't want to be dependent financially on a man or on anyone. Um, So, from a very early age, I knew savings were important and I knew that my credit score was important, which is one of the best lessons I've ever learned. So, shout out to my mom. But, you know, overall, my family wasn't religious. We didn't do anything religious, we didn't talk about it. And, both my parents had been divorced. And so they found each other later on. And my mom had me when she was 40 years old. So yeah, divorce was pretty normalized. We, you know, there wasn't any religious beliefs about it or stigmas. It just kind of, you know, it was what it was. And so when thinking back on it, you know, I was raised in a very progressive household and that's what made it or makes it so hard for me to understand how I ended up in this abusive relationship.
0: So did you feel you were living your own life or were you living expectations of others? Um, or did your, parents, did your parents instill you to think for yourself or um, you to be more like them?
1: They absolutely instilled me to think for myself. Um, I think I did well at school because I liked it. You know, they they supported me and provided help when I needed it. But ultimately, I loved school and I loved basketball. Um, so I did it because I loved it. And yeah, I, they definitely encouraged me to think for myself. Um, I've always known I wanted to be in a helping profession. I have a, a paper I wrote in high school about what I wanted to be. It was a school social worker. <laughs> Um, so I've always known it and I've always known I've wanted to work with underserved communities. So when I did graduate from college, I moved, um, to LA and worked at a school in Compton because I wanted to serve the most underserved populations. And that was really instrumental in how I got to where I am now. But I've always had like, I guess what they call a servant's heart, um, I think I just noticed specifically how educational inequities impact different marginalized populations. Um, and so I just always knew that's what I wanted to do, um, which will then relate back to how I'm an empath and you know all those things.
0: So you wrote to me that uh, of your three relationships that preceded the this abusive relationship that we'll be discussing today, that in relationship number two, you noticed that you had an anxious attachment style and that you were with an avoidant attachment uh, person. So you grew up in a normal, healthy environment. You were taught to think for yourself, there was no abuse in the household of any kind. You did well in school. Uh, You started working. You were working with underprivileged people uh, in society like you wanted to. So I guess my question would be, before we move forward, I guess let's look a little bit backward. You have this anxious attachment style. And where do you think it came from?
1: I think... My anxious attachment style, I part of me thinks it's innate. Um, As long as I can remember, I've been the person who's there for other people, um, who I will put everyone's needs before my own. And I, I do see those qualities in my mom, for sure. She always puts everyone else before herself to the point that, you know, her when you talk about you have to fill your own cup before you fill other people's cups, uh, her cup will be empty and she'll still keep giving. Um, and so I think that is a big part. Um, I think I just put other people before me.
0: So just to point out that this is one of those innocent traits that can get inherited from uh parent to a child. And it's an admirable admirable trait that your mom had, but it's also a very unhealthy one. And you mimic that trait. And you had a great childhood. But here's a case where we can trace back the why uh, of how you could have been in an abusive situation where your boundaries just fell away at a certain point after you got addicted to uh, the abuser. And I just really wanted to point that out for uh, everyone to hear that it's just not people that grew up in traumatic situations that some of these things can happen um, through these little innocent things where a parent thinks that they're doing the right thing, um, but it's showing an actually an unhealthy trait that's, that's going on. Um, uh, so after uh, that little... T- Tangent there. I apologize for interrupting you. Uh tell us how you met your ex.
1: Yes. So um I met Jay on Hinge. Um and he messaged me because one of one of the little prompts I had was a fact about myself. And I said that I don't have any social media. Um I haven't had it for years. I just it just wasn't something that appealed to me. So I deleted social media a long time ago. Um, And, you know, that's one of the first things I said about myself. And so he responded to it, you know, saying just how much he respected it. And that response caught my attention because it felt more grounded um, and more genuine, which is hard to find on dating apps. Um, So, yeah, we started messaging back and forth and he seemed real real grounded. He was um, really easy to talk to. We talked on the phone and ended up talking probably for two hours um, and just was so easy to talk to. Um, and I'm, I'm more of an introvert. It takes someone else to get more out of me. Typically, um, I'm a lot more laid back and a listener and quiet. Um, and, and he brought that out of me. And I liked that. So, yeah, after chatting for a little bit, he asked me to go on a date. He planned everything, and I loved that. <laughs> and so he made the plan for us to meet at this, you know, restaurant bar. And it was, it was really natural. Um, the moment I saw him, we gave each other a hug, and it just flowed from there. You know, I think when I listen to these podcasts, I always hear the word charismatic. And Jay was Charismatic. Um, and I've always been attracted to that. And that is the first thing I noticed about him. Uh, he could talk to the bartender, me, the person next to him, you know, he just made people feel comfortable. Um, and so background about me, I'm not much of a partier. I don't drink a lot. I don't like to go out like that. Um, but he does and did. And so that night we ended up drinking a lot. And you know, going into the date, I didn't expect to sleep with him. Um, I thought we would have this date, and then I would go home. But we drank a lot, and then it, you know he encouraged a lot of it, and then he mentioned that conveniently he lived down the street from this bar of the date he had planned, so we walk home, we end up sleeping together, um and I stayed the night and When I woke up, I was like, well, this was definitely a one-night stand. Um, I know how this goes. And I think I said something about like, well, that was fun. See you never. And he responded to that. He, you know, he had a little bracelet thing and he put it on me and he was like, I'm going to get this back from you because I'm going to see you again. And so, you know, that, that triggered something in me like, oh, he wants, he wants to see me again. This wasn't a one-night stand. Um, so, you know, it it perked my ears a little bit. So then fast forward, you know, we start seeing each other pretty regularly. Um, after our first date, he invited me over again. And when I got there, you know, this is the second time I've hung out with this guy. He had gotten me gluten-free snacks for his house because I'm celiac. And he was like, I wanted you to have something here that you could eat. And then on top of that, so I am a social worker. And at the time I was running a food pantry at my school. And, you know, it's a big passion of mine. And he had gotten food to donate to my food pantry. Which, you know, my bleeding heart loved. And that was a big hook, line, and sinker for me. So... We began staying each other at each other's places, you know, about three times a week pretty quickly. Um, We were talking 24-7, texting, um, if we weren't together. And, you know, it it was everything I had wanted. He wanted to talk to me. He wanted to be around me. He started really early on, started talking about living together and that he couldn't wait to see me pregnant with our child. And no one had ever told me that. So that that one is something that has always stuck with me is he wanted me to be pregnant with our kid.
0: How long into the relationship was that?
1: Um, probably two or three months. and so my my birthday came up you know around that same time, and he went all out. I mean, he planned this whole night um, and we left. You know, we Ubered, and went out, and when we got back, he had set up all these gifts he had gotten for me. Um, you know, I really, I'm a big Nike fan, so he got me all of these, all this Nike stuff and gluten-free cupcakes and just things he knew about me. They were, they were tailored to me. And I felt so special. Um, he went through so much trouble three months in, all about my birthday, which I don't care about my birthday ever, but he, he did. And so, yeah, from there, it turned into me staying there five nights a week, probably. Um, Which, you know, this is maybe one of the first red flags. I didn't want to stay there all the time. I have a cat. I love being home. You know, I had my own place. And I didn't want to be at his place all the time. I liked being at my home. And I wanted to split the time. But because he was walking distance from his job he insisted that we stay at his place. So I ended up bringing my cat over to stay with us those five days. But because he wanted me there and wanted to be around me and come home to me after work, I did it. And I brought my coffee pot and, you know, various other things to leave at his house. Um, And I thought it was, you know, it was indicative that he wanted me around, that he wanted to commit to me. Um, And so, you know, in your form, you ask if, were you overwhelmed? And I wasn't overwhelmed at all. I loved every part of it and I was falling in love with him. And because of that, all the red flags that began to appear, I I dismissed.
0: So before we get to all of those red flags, you're essentially living with him already here, or you're, you're really... A twenty-four hour couple um, within three months, even though you are technically splitting where you are staying, it's still full on. Um, you know why you like him in the sense of all of these things that he's doing uh, with with the, with the love bombing and catering it just to you. When you take out those things specifically and his charisma as as well. What else is it that you like about him? Uh, if, if you're able to answer that.
1: I am. Um, what I liked about him is that he had, you know, surmounted a lot of obstacles in his life and, you know, he grew up and he left and he made something of himself. Um, he had gotten a pretty solid job and, you know, he moved to San Francisco on his own with no one else and made a life. And I thought that was really admirable and resilient. And I I liked that he had such a story.
0: So for you, this is really the perfect wolf in sheep's clothing scenario. Like nothing could have been written up better than this This scenario, uh, and besides the love bombing, the charisma, uh, here's someone that came from nothing, underprivileged, made something of themselves and you're working with kids from underprivileged backgrounds and your ex is just an example of everything you hope these uh, kids can aspire to be. I mean, this really is the perfect storm.
1: Yeah. I was totally sold. And I brought him around the kids all the time because I thought he was such a great role model for them. Um, Like they built relationships with him. So, yeah.
0: So you sent me a bunch of red flags and some devaluation situations that occurred before some of the really big stories uh, toward the end. So what were some of these red flag and devaluation uh, scenarios that were happening early on?
1: Um, The biggest hook, line, and sinker was also the biggest red flag that I ignored, um, ironically. So... We're at my place and, you know, something about his, he was having a hard time finding a job Um, and it was because they were running background reports. And so he was like, I need to tell you something that I haven't told a lot of people. And so we sit down on the floor and, you know, it's a really intimate moment where, you know, I'm like holding him. He's really vulnerable, which, you know, he's a big masculine man, like picture Six one, two twenty 220 pounds, like, this man, I never saw him cry, um, but he's, you know, he's on the floor vulnerable, and he tells me he has a DUI, which, you know, like, not great, but okay, and then he says, and I have a domestic violence charge from seven years ago, and you would think, as a licensed social worker, I would be like, get the fuck out. But because of being an empath, I hear him out, and I'm like, "Wow, thank you for telling me that. What happened?" And he he spins it. You know, I'll never know the the real truth. But he his story is that him and his ex were fighting in a hotel, which will be irrelevant later on. Um, and someone called the cops, and they get there, and his ex is like, no, nothing happened. He didn't hurt me. You know, That you don't need to take him. But there's a no tolerance law um, where if the cops are called to a domestic violence situation, they, someone has to be arrested. And so they arrest him. And so in my brain and verbally, I tell him, I'm so sorry you went through that. Our justice system is so inequitable. And of course, you are in a, you know, a majority white town and these cops come and they see this big black man and this little white girl and they arrest you because of systemic inequities. Of course, you got arrested. I'm so sorry that happened. And I didn't have a doubt in my mind. I believed him. And looking back on it now, I know that's bullshit. I'm sure she was hurt. But I had I had no doubt that it was the system that screwed him over.
0: And then you had some controlling behaviors that were going on. Uh, what were some of those?
1: The first one that has always stuck out to me um, that I dismissed was that I was not allowed to walk in front of him um apparently I walked quickly didn't know that about myself but I would unintentionally walk in front of him and you know the first couple times I did it he would pull me back and be like I don't like when you walk in front of me and that was hard for me to internalize um because that's not something I've ever even thought about and so I continued to do it unintentionally And finally, it got to the point where he grabbed my wrist and pulled me back. um, And he said, I've told you, I don't like when you walk in front of me. Men lead, women follow. And then he held my hand and we continued walking. Um, And it was just that subtle holding my hand, showing me love. And I was like, okay, that's, that's, I will never walk in front of you again. And I didn't, and I didn't walk in front of another man again. You know, another big one was upon talking about living with each other. Um, he wouldn't sign a lease unless I got his name tattooed on me. And in my head, I was like, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> but I wanted to live with him. Um, and so in my head, I was like, you know, I told him, yes, okay. Okay. And I just kept thinking, I'll, I'll figure out a way out of this. And so I say, okay, I'll get a J, you know, the letter tattooed on me. And he was like, no, that's not enough. That's too easy to cover up or play off. And I was like, well, I, I never call you your full name. Why would I get that tattooed on me? And he was like, a J isn't
0: enough. So that one right there is pretty early on. You're trying to figure A way out of this. Do you see this as controlling? Like how do you view this?
1: I I don't think I dug that deep. I think I I wouldn't allow myself to reflect on that. I think it was I want to live with him and I'll do I'll do what he wants. And I'm not I'm not gonna think too deeply into it because I know how fucked up this is. Um so yeah, another red flag, uh, we had to be texting constantly. I, I don't know how we got into this routine. Um, you know, I'm sure he led us into it, but I always had to be the one to text him good morning. You know, I was up earlier for work. I work at a school. Um, I left before him. And so there was literally a time limit. By 8 a.m., I had to text him good morning. And if I didn't, you know, because a lot of stuff comes up in a school um, at any time, uh, I would get texts. What are you doing? Why haven't I heard from you? And so I started just every morning as soon as I pull into the parking lot, send that good morning text. And along with that, we had to constantly communicate. And mind you, I'm a social worker at a school. I deal with students who are suicidal, I deal with students who are homeless, I deal with Bites. Um, I, I never know what's going to happen when I walk into school. Um, kids who haven't eaten in days, you know, uh, kids who are being abused. Um, and so still through all that, I was expected to text him constantly. And so I constantly was anxious. Has he texted me back? How long has it been? Do I need to text him? I'm in the middle of assessing this student, but I need to text him back. Um, and I was just never present fully for the students I serve. And there is there this one time, you know, so I'm, I'm coaching a basketball team. It's our first game. I have 15 girls on my team and none of the other teams or coaches are there with me. So I'm responsible for 15 girls at an away game, getting them on the bus, playing and getting them home. And so I don't text him because I'm trying to make sure these girls are safe and playing basketball. Um, so, you know, it's probably two and a half, three hours. I haven't texted him and he was at my place. And so when, when I get home to him, he is irate. I know basketball games don't last that long. Um, you could have at least texted me at halftime, just so persistent that I had to be talking to him. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I was trying to focus on these girls, but you're right. I'll text you at halftime next time. So I did every other game. He got a halftime update. The game's starting it's halftime. This is the score games over. I'll be home in 20 minutes. And that's what it was for the rest of the season. Yeah. Um, so some background on me, um, like I said, I'm a licensed social worker. Um, my focus in school was on educational inequities um, And how the education system impacts students of marginalized populations, um, specifically students of color. Um, And my major focus was on the uh, school-to-prison pipeline. Um, So I will never be an expert, but I have done a lot of work, you know, surrounding white privilege, um, understanding my biases and the privileges I hold in this society, um, and I've really tried to learn how to use those privileges to advocate and be an ally for underserved, you know, groups. And Jay knew that very early on. I think I told him probably before we even met that, you know, that's what I'm passionate about. That's the job I do. I work in a Title I school um, and it's to fight the inequities. And so... I think him knowing that and knowing that I had this knowledge of the statistics and, you know, how inequitable society is towards marginalized populization and specifically black men. Um, and so he, he weaponized that against me a couple times. Um, and so there, there's this one time where we all went to my family's house and my uncle said something along, I don't remember what he said, but he called him dude. And my uncle calls everyone dude. I I don't know why. Um, But Jay just found it incredibly disrespectful. Um, And the word disrespect will come up very often in this. He always felt disrespected by anyone. Um, And so, you know, we get home and he's like, I get really weird vibes from your uncle. And I was like, why? And he's like, he called me dude. And so I'm like, okay, let me try to, you know, step back and look at your perspective. You're at an all white family event. You're the only black man there. And I was like, you're right. That probably did come off really disrespectful coming from my white uncle to you. Like, I know that my uncle calls everyone that, but I understand that you felt like it was probably because you're a black man. And so I was like, he didn't mean it like that. I'm so sorry that he made you feel that way. Um, you know, really trying to empathize with him. And I, I don't know how, but it escalates. And he's just yelling at me. And finally he says, you just have slave owner blood in your body. And I am just your black boyfriend to parade around. And I, as soon as he said that, I felt so guilty. And I gave in. I was like, You're right. I can't understand anything you go through. All these horrible things you're yelling at me are justified. And I just apologized over and over. He's telling me what he doesn't like about who I am innately. And so, because I hate confrontation, I don't push back ever.
0: So you're and, not you're not telling him what you don't like about him. That's too scary.
1: Absolutely. And I, I don't think I had that many things I didn't like about him, you know, from the start, at the start. And I, I think I liked that he, you know, I can be indecisive because I don't want to make a decision that's going to make someone uncomfortable. You know, like I have a hard time doing what's best for me. And so I liked that he was just telling me what to do because then I was like, great, I'll do it. And it's not going to be something that you don't like.
0: So you think your needs are being met because you're filling the needs of others and not yourself. Yes. You are your mom.
1: I sure am through and through.
0: So in the note you uh, originally sent me, you said that Jay liked to really devalue uh, your communication style. So can you explain that a little bit to us?
1: In terms of just my everyday conversation, he sa- he would say it was boring. Um, like I just wasn't very good at, com- at talking. And then like in the relationship communication piece, He said I would stonewall him. He used that word all the time, um, that I would stonewall and I didn't know how to communicate um, and that I needed to find a therapist. And when I think about the stonewalling piece, you know, now I realize he was attacking my character and me and saying horrible things and I would shut down because I wasn't going to fight back because I didn't want confrontation. And so I, I just would sit there and take it, and he took that as me, or manipulated me into thinking I was stonewalling him. I couldn't win if I fought back; it would escalate. If I didn't fight back, it would escalate. I didn't know what to say, and so I didn't say anything. I didn't know how to make it stop. Like he, he was just the type of person. Once he was mad, you had to let it, let him. To, like throw every punch he had not physically yet but you know so to speak Um and you, could, you couldn't tell him anything once he was mad that was it
0: do you think that anything is out of the ordinary when that happens or do you think this is what relationships are like
1: I think I thought that's what a relationship was like I I thought it was normal um and, you know, along the lines with the communication, the, the third piece of that was that not only was I boring, like my communication was boring, but I didn't talk enough. And so if you would say something and, you know, I'm an internalizer. I mean, I like to take a moment to think about what I'm going to say. So if I took too long, he would get mad. If I took five seconds to respond to him, why do you have to think about it that hard? Just, just talk back. It's not that hard. That, he would always say that. It's not that hard to communicate. And so it turned into me constantly being anxious about, oh, my God, what am I going to say next? Have I taken too long to respond to you? Are you mad now? What am I going to say? Um, and it just, it was a constant cycle.
0: So you're thinking you're in the wrong Most of the time. All the time. Yeah. So you're believing that you are wrong and you've been twisted around and you have no you're done. You're cooked. Um, you at this point you love him so much. The job that was done at the beginning and him being the perfect thing at this point of this relationship, which is November ish. Mm -hmm you're cooked. You have no sense of self anymore. Absolutely. 100%. All of your worth is in his hands.
1: And and the crazy part about it is I I had the knowledge that this type of person and disorder exists. I had the education about it. But not once did I did I take my academic brain and apply it To my relationship, you know, like not once. I think my previous relationships, they had attachment issues, but they, a lot of people do, you know, that's a pretty normal thing. And this was a whole different ballgame.
0: So then a series of events occur in a row that build toward the end and leaving him for good. So take us through that.
1: So in December, we decided to go to Tulsa to meet his family.
0: And a trigger warning, this is when sexual abuse will come up, everyone.
1: Um, and I'm so excited. I get to meet his mom, his little sister, aunts, uncles, the whole family. This is huge for me. And again, it's indicative of how he really wants to be with me. We are flying to meet his family. Um, so I'm stoked for it we get there um and the first night um is where this happens the first night we're there um and so he had always had this thing that he wanted to have um anal sex and you know that was something I wasn't really interested in um I made the mistake of disclosing to him that I had done it one time in college when both me and the other person were incredibly drunk. And, you know, it just happened. I never wanted to do it again. Um, but he hung on to that and never let it go. And what he said is that he couldn't stand that another man had a part of me that he didn't. And so he persistently insisted we do it and and i I try I try to give him what he wants, and it it hurt, and I couldn't do it, so yeah, it hurts too much, and I can't do it, and I tell him to stop, and he becomes irate, and just why can't you give this to me that i I just want all of you. I want your body, mind, and soul. And I can't believe you gave it to this man and you can't give it to me. And explodes. He starts throwing everything at me, just devaluing me um, about how I can't give him what he wants. And we're up till 4 a.m., which is a theme for us um anytime we would fight he i would say can we please just go to bed and talk about this in the morning like we just need we just need to take a second um and he he wouldn't let us so we would be up until 4 a.m fighting um i can't even count the amount of times i went to work the next day after going to bed at 4 a.m so in tulsa it's 4 a.m we're fighting um He said every name in the book to me. And all of a sudden he was like, all right, whatever. I'm over this. I'm just horny. And I was like, what? We've been fighting all night long. How, how is this something you're thinking of? And I was like, okay, well, I'm not. And he was like, I don't care. I'm horny. The hotel is in my name. So either you give me oral sex or you go sleep in the car. And he was dead serious. And so, of course, my survival instincts kicked in, and I was forced to give him oral sex if I wanted a bed to sleep in that night. So I do, and we go to bed, and we wake up the next day like nothing happened. Um, I go meet his mom and his family, and they're great, and they love me, and I love them. And I completely suppress what happened the first night. Yeah.
0: Do you think about it in the terms of like, this was sexual abuse? Or do you repress that yourself like so deep right away? Because you just don't want to uh, deal with it. And, you know, we've talked a, a while here. Um, but I've never asked you the question of, are you telling anyone what's going on?
1: No one knew. No one knew any of it.
0: So you're carrying all of this by yourself. What are you saying to yourself at this point after this specific incident? I'd say like, what are you saying about yourself to yourself?
1: That I have to figure out a way to give it to him or it'll never stop. I have to do it for him.
0: Are you thinking at all like I'm a bad person or just are you still like you, you're the, the love of this person is still so strong. The addiction of this is so strong that you cannot think in any other terms at this point.
1: I think it's so strong and it is strengthened even more because we are in his hometown and I'm seeing the most intimate parts of how he grew up. And all of that matters more. And I not once in my head did I say that was sexual assault. Completely repressed it and focused on, I get to see everything about your life that you've told me. And this is so special to me.
0: That is quite the cognitive dissonance to, you know, look at that specific situation and you're looking at the light of it and the real positive Of that situation, um, that's pretty. It's pretty interesting to show, like, that's how twisted around you were, or how like far deep into it you you really were. Um, so after that happens, I know there's like a couple more events. What's the uh, like before like the end, the end, end event? So (laughs) what were what what happened? Um. So
1: we come, you know, we're back. We're, we're just continue to on with our normal relationship. Um, there's one time we go to the mall about 30 minutes from my place. Um, he had this thing where he liked to take my car, but he would drive. Um, so he's driving and we start fighting about God knows what. Um, and you know, in He told me I needed a therapist. So throughout this, I found one and shout out to her. She's fucking awesome. And I still meet with her and she's been an integral part of me, you know, growing and healing. But she mentioned that a healthy strategy when fighting is to take a time out. And we had talked about it and I told him we should try this. You know, we talked about it when we weren't fighting. And so we're in my car and we're fighting. And I say, he pulls over in a parking lot and stops. And I'm like, okay, I need a timeout. I'm, I'm using this strategy. Like I need a timeout. And so I get out and close the door and I'm planning to just go sit for a second. And he takes off in my car. And once again, leaves me in the middle of the street at night. So I sit there and I wait an hour for him to come back and he does not And I haven't heard from him and I don't feel like I should be the one to reach out to him. So I don't. And so I order an Uber to come get me and take me back to my home because I don't have my car. And I also don't have my keys. So I get to my place and have to crawl through the window to get in there and, you know, probably 20 minutes later, he calls me and he's like, where'd you go? And I was like, I'm home. And he goes, what did you do that for? I was just at the gas station across the street getting a snack. So completely gaslights me. I know he left me. I know he drove off. I saw him do it. But he, he puts it on me. I'm crazy for leaving he was right next door. Why would I do that? So yeah, as the relationship progresses, um, he, his lease ends and he moves into my place the beginning of January. So it, the lease is in my name. It's my place. And the plan is that we are going to find a place together when my lease is up. And obviously I got to get that tattoo. Um, but so he's living with me. Um, and then the start of February happens. And we have his friends over, and we're just having a game night, you know, having fun. And they ask some innocent question like, Well, now that you live together, what's one thing like you can't stand about each other? And so I say, He plays really loud music in the morning, and sometimes I'm just not ready for it. And his friend mentions some artist that Jay loves and that the friend hates. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, I can't stand him either. And when I tell you Jay flips, holy shit, it is immediately, you're all attacking me. Why are you against me? You're supposed to be my girl and have my back. Um, I mean, he's, he's standing up at this point. He's flipped the table. I'm crying because this is so embarrassing to be doing in front of his friends. So I go to my room. Um, his friend stays there and his friend's wife follows me. And so I hear Jay throw a glass and it shatters. Um, He throws my kitchen chair and breaks that. He tries to fight his friend who's trying to calm him down. Meanwhile, you know, this is probably, this is the first time anyone knows anything that this is happening. And she's in there and she's like, is it always like this? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it is. And she was like, I grew up in an abusive household. And this is abuse. And you know, for everyone listening, take note, she said, if you ever need a safe place to go, call me. I don't know this girl. We've I've met her twice. And fast forward to what happens in you know the next couple weeks. She was the first person I called because of what she said. And so, anyways, um, They leave and we're still fighting and it's escalating. And finally he throws this metal wine opener at me and it hits me. And this is the first time, you know, something physical has happened like that. And so I, I lose it. I'm trying to leave and he's cornering me everywhere. He's holding my wrists down um, and won't let me leave. So, I end up with, like, bruised wrists, a bruised hand, um, and I lock myself in the bathroom because he won't, he won't let me go. He won't leave me alone. And, you know, it's been hours. Finally, he passes out, and I should mention we were drinking, and Jay had a serious problem with alcohol, and it wasn't frequency. It was when he would drink, he would get hammered, but you wouldn't know it. He was a full functioning blackout drunk, which I think is probably the scariest kind because I never knew when he was at that level. Um, so yeah, he passes out and yeah, fast forward, he doesn't come home. Um, the next day, I don't hear from him. He completely ghosts me and then comes home the day after. And I apologize for not having his back and for making him feel attacked. And then I say, I also want you to hear that the, the physical piece of this, I will not tolerate. And you know what? A huge red flag is his response. And he says, well, where I'm from, all the old heads say, you can only tolerate so much disrespect from a woman before you have to put your hands on her. Um, and, you know, of course, I suppress that move along. And then the end of the end happens.
0: So after that incident happened and he says all of those things, and then obviously that person, you know, chimed in, I I lived in an abusive household. Mm. Does that startle you?
1: It startles me in the way that I already knew this and you just called it out. And now someone else knows.
0: Yeah, like did, your ther- like, did you ever discuss this with the, like your therapist? Did your therapist ever say you're being abused? Or are you just working on communication with your therapist? Or does your therapist not want to tell you what's really going on?
1: I purposefully kept a lot from her. Um, but she also is a trained therapist, and she absolutely knew what was going on. And just, you know, as a therapist, you can't just come out and say that.
0: Probably in fear of if I say it out loud, they might not come back. And that's the worst case scenario.
1: Yeah. And I wouldn't have because I would have told him she said that and he would have manipulated it. So I never, yeah, I never, I knew exactly what to keep from her, but she also knew.
0: But now that people saw, people saw it, these things Mm -hmm. are said, it was said out loud to you. It's on a front burner. And, 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 and when you think about that, at that moment in time, do you then feel everything instead of repressing everything? Like when it comes over, does it, is it overwhelming or no?
1: No, I don't let myself feel that. But I do know in the back of my mind that it's only going to get worse. I, like I knew it was coming.
0: So eventually you go on a trip with this person and uh, what happens there? Yeah.
1: So we go two weeks later, we go to Vegas for his cousin's wedding. Um, and like, like I just said, I, I knew it was going to escalate. Um, and I think I knew it was going to happen in Vegas. Because I was dreading the trip. I don't like to drink. I don't like to party. He had already made it clear we were drinking every night. And staying out as late as he wanted. To the point that I said. Well what if you're out with your family. And like I can go back early. Because you know I like to sleep. No. You're staying out with us. So I'm dreading this the, the whole time. And. We. We get there. We land at. 8 p.m., get to our hotel, and he immediately wants to start drinking. Like, we're, we're going out. It doesn't matter. And so we're drinking tequila, and he. this whole thing starts because I want to chase my alcohol with Gatorade because I'm trying to be responsible and survive these next four days, and he wants me to chase it with red bull because he doesn't want me to get tired when we're out and i don't know what it was that made me fight back i don't know why this was the hill i chose to die on but i was not giving in i was like that's fucking insane if i want to drink gatorade i can drink gatorade and it blew up from there um so we're we're yelling at each other screaming um and you know before anything happens he leaves the room for 30 minutes and i didn't know what he was doing at the time now i know he was you know down in the lobby drinking but he comes back and we're still fighting i'm not giving in um i'm telling him this is ridiculous like, let's just go out. Just let it go. And he won't. Um, And for the life of me, I can't remember what sparked it. But I said something. And all of a sudden, he hits me in my face. In my mouth. So, the inside of my lip is bleeding and bruised. And then... He slams me on the bed and gets on top of me and strangles me. And I somehow get my feet on his chest. And I will never forget. He looks down at me and he smirks and he says, what are you going to do? Kick me? And I do. I was like, that's a great idea. And so I kick him off of me. And he is irate that I just overpowered him. And so He gets back on the bed. He slams my head into the wall and strangles me again. And I can't remember how I got away. I was losing consciousness. But somehow I did. I got away. And I'm trying to grab whatever I can. And he takes my phone and wallet. And so I'm like, fuck, I can't leave. I can't go anywhere without a phone or a wallet. And he throws my phone and it completely shatters. So I end up just grabbing what I could, putting it in a suitcase. I don't think I even had shoes on. um, And i run down the hotel hallway. I get to the elevator, push the button, and he follows me. And before the elevator could get there, he shoves me up against the wall, pushes me to the ground, and drags me by my wrist down the entire hotel hallway back to our hotel room. Thankfully, the man in the room next to us was out there, um, and he he sees us, and he yells at his friends, and he's like, guys, get out here. This dude's beating up this girl, and he's like, are you okay? And I was like, No. Um, and he was like, okay, I'm calling the cops. And so Jay drags me back into the room. But before that, he looks at this guy and he goes, you just see a black man and a white woman, and you want to call the cops on us. And then drags me back into the room. Um, at this point, he knows he's caught. And so he's trying to deescalate the situation. Would you really call the cops on me? Like, how could you do that? You know, trying guilt trip me, and would you really talk to them? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I would. Um, and and it takes them about thirty minutes to get there, so we're just, you know, nothing physical happens in that time. Um, he's trying to guilt trip me and find his way out of it. Um, and so the cops get there, and I can't even. you how poorly this was handled um but they separate us you know 10 feet away from each other and it's all male cops they're trying to um they're taking pictures they're taking my statement they get my last name and my phone number wrong and they arrest jay and before that a black cop comes up to jay and jay goes you know how this goes like you're like I'm a black man and they see a white woman and they just want to arrest me trying to get sympathy from this cop and the cop doesn't buy it you know he handcuffs him and they take him away um but that's just another piece of that manipulation and so they don't do a medical exam on me they don't take me to the hospital they don't call a victim's advocate Um, once they get my statement, they tell me that Jay, the, the room was in Jay's name. And he said, I was not allowed to stay in there. And because of that, I, they had to issue me a trespassing warning and I had to leave the property and could not be on any Caesars property again. And so I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know Vegas. It's 1am at this point and they go. We hear the MGM's pretty great. And so they escort me to my Uber and ensure that I leave their property. I fully intended on going to the MGM. Um, remember I I tried calling the the friend who tried to help me. Um and she didn't answer. It was, you know, late at night. Um, and so I call my other friend because He, for some reason, I was like, he's awake. He doesn't sleep very much. He'll be awake. And I FaceTime him and he answers. And I'm, you know, just a mess telling him everything that happened. And I'm like, I'm going to the MGM. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, you have to fly home. And talks to the Uber driver for me, changes the destination. And I get to the airport. Um, Somehow the frontier desk is still open. And so my friend on FaceTime talks to them, figures out a flight home. And I get a ticket for 6 a.m. I spend the night in the airport and he stays on the phone with me the entire night. And I fly home at 6 a.m. And when I get home, my friend, you know, he calls me and he says, You have until the end of the day to tell your parents. Otherwise, I'm driving down there and telling them. To give you my perspective, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to leave Vegas. I guarantee I was gonna stay there and bail him out because it was my fault that he was in there. Um I wasn't ready to tell my parents because I wasn't ready. To end the relationship. And. I think my friend. I know my friend saved my life. With this move. Because had I not told my parents. I wouldn't have left. So I call my mom. And I tell her. And she says pack your suitcase. I'm coming to get you. And. Since the day I got back. I have not stepped foot. Back into that house. Yeah, so the next day I'm at my parents um, and I wake up to various missed calls from his mom. And I call her back and she's like, what's going on? And I was like, what did he tell you? And she's like, just that you guys got in a fight and he's arrested. But all he keeps telling me is to call you and make sure you're okay. And so I'm still like, wow he cares about me he's all he's telling his mom is to check on me he loves me um but the other part of me tells her like let me tell you what your son did to me so I tell her everything um and she's appalled and you know says he never grew up with that I can't believe it whatever um and so he's finally released from jail two days later and I get the whole apology text, how he's so sorry, he's an abuser, and he'll, he's going to move back and stay in the basement of my place until he can find a place. But we're going to work it out. And I was like, absolutely not, you will not be staying in my place, you have two weeks to get out, which was very generous of me, I now realize. <laughs> and. Um, but but I I let him keep texting me those two weeks because all my stuff is still there, and I know he's gonna come back there. Um, so I let him continue to apologize and tell me he's gonna fix it and he's gonna go to therapy and all these things. Um and once Sunday comes and he hands my dad the keys to the place, I text him and I tell him by the time you receive this, you will be blocked. You are an abuser. I want absolutely nothing to do with you. Um, Do not try to contact me. And he hasn't. I, you know, a couple of months later went and filed a restraining order for the place that we both live. Um, And it was granted and I also, that same day, went and filed charges for the, the incident two weeks prior to Vegas, um, where he threw the wine opener at me. And at this moment, he has no clue that I filed those charges. Um, there's an active warrant for his arrest that he's completely unaware of. And, and in terms of the Vegas incident, he was charged with domestic battery. So he, to give you his rap sheet, he has a DUI, a DV from seven years ago, a DV charge in Vegas, and then the DV charge that there's a warrant
0: for his arrest. So you're now uh, you living with your uh, parents at this point, trying to really deal with the abuse that happened, the control that you were under, coercive control, uh, all of those things. Um, dealing with the trauma, um, you know, working with your therapist. And that is, is its own thing to process and, and deal with. And then there's also processing and, and dealing with, well, how did I get here? Why did... Um, Why did I repress these things and um, figuring out that you are like your mom and that you're a good person and that you were putting other people's feelings over yours and then figuring out how to still be a good person, but fill your cup first and not feel guilty if others' needs aren't met before yours. So I guess take us through um, that process and the struggles that you might be having with it.
1: It's been tough. Um, Two months after this incident, my dad unexpectedly passed away. So it has been pretty difficult to process this trauma and this loss of jay the person i loved and to also process the loss of my dad um i have not been able to process that part and i don't know when i'll be able to um my my body can only handle so much trauma and it's amazing how the brain works so in trying to heal from my relationship. Um I was going to therapy twice a week for, you know, a couple months. Um EMDR has been probably the most important piece of it all. Um I think it's played a, a major role in not letting the trauma seep into my brain even more. Um and I threw myself into basketball and have just tried to stay busy with that and with work and therapy. Um, And, you know, my friends and family have been more supportive than I could ever have. People still check in on me daily. You know, my boss at work, I told him everything and I got all the time off I needed. And he still checks in on me and, you know, he, they all knew that I had the restraining order and, they had, they were protecting me. I completely relocated to a different part of the city so that he has no clue where I am. Um, you know, what's interesting is I, I have a really hard time sleeping. And every night I wake up at 3 and I'm terrified that he's at my house. I have no reason to think that. You know, I haven't seen him follow me or anything. But every night I wake up. And I'm terrified. That he's going to come back. And try to kill me. And that is because. You know. Upon all this healing. And talking with people. I have learned the statistics for strangulation. Um, and I spent a long time. Thinking this incident. Wasn't that bad. Because when I. When I thought of abuse, I thought of someone punching someone over and over, and, you know, black eyes and bruises you can't cover. And so I, I didn't think I was that abused. I didn't think what he did was that bad. And then I talked to a victim's advocate and she told me that if you have been strangled by your partner, that strangulation is the last step before homicide strangulation is the ultimate form of power and dominance and oftentimes abusers use it because it doesn't leave marks and i believe with my whole heart that i would have stayed i would have bailed him out and the next time he would have strangled me and killed me So I am forever grateful to my friend for that night because he saved my life and to my family. Because what's crazy, you know, I don't, I'm working on this in therapy is valuing myself. And I've realized the reason I didn't go back wasn't for me. It was because everyone else had done so much for me. And I was like, how can I disappoint them? How can I let them do all of this and then go back to my abuser? It hasn't been, I didn't deserve that. I can't do that for myself. I can o- I can only justify it when thinking about others. So that's what I'm working through right now.
0: So... Uh... I guess one last thing, and this is going to be difficult to talk about because it involves shame. Um, But I think it's good for everyone to hear is that this can also happen to a mental health professional and that you have shame about what you went through because you are a mental health professional and that, in your mind, um, you think you should know this. So, how has that been going? And do you, I guess, have flashbacks or these moments that just hit you and... You want to cry when that happens and shame overwhelms you? Am I putting words in your mouth right now? And <laughs> I'll let you go.
1: <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I think this is something that's going to take me a long time to accept because I feel immense embarrassment that I have a master's degree in a mental health profession. And that I was taught all the signs, all the flags. I was taught how to be a therapist for someone who's gone through all of this. And still, I got sucked in. Um, and, you know, it took me a long time to be able to share my story because it I'm so embarrassed by it. But what I am coming to terms with is narcissists are so good and you know Brandon he said it I was cooked once once he had me I let everything on the back burner and yeah when I think back about all you know even just telling you the red flags my heart sinks because how could an independent liberal woman let a man look at her in the eye and say, Men lead, women follow. Like, I feel so much shame about that little piece. Because I can lead if I want. Or you're my partner. We can walk together. Um and you know, to this day, I still have to tell myself I find myself walking behind men, slowing my pace. Um So yeah, there's, there's a lot of shame and a lot of retraining I'm going to have to do to be the strong person I was raised to be.
0: So there is a lot of pain here and there's a lot of trauma that has gone on uh, in multiple ways. And it, you know, with shame, um, It becomes really tough, but I want you to remember that the abuser um, exploited this one thing about you, this one trait, this trait that is admirable in so many ways but in the wrong hands it can be taken advantage of and that's what happened here uh, you did nothing wrong you know once the addiction took hold that trait was easily exploited once they knew exactly what to do how you ticked everything and this was the perfect perfect person to do that to you. Um, and that there's no shame in this. This can happen to anybody. Doesn't matter what your profession is, what type of education you have, this can happen to anybody. And it just so happens that it happened to you. Um, but you're a good person. And You uh, deserve to know that. And and the healing process isn't going to be easy. I mean, you were twisted around pretty good and and, and pretty quickly. And every day you were given these rules to live by. And once you do that so often, it becomes ingrained of you of how you act. And it's going to take a specific amount of time of, of practicing the opposite way, the opposite way of being for you to go back to um, who you were again because you were twisted into being something that you weren't. You aren't that person and we all know that. We all hear that and um, you're just a really good person and uh, everyone's really um, thankful for you um, being here today. And I guess before we finish, um, uh, did you have any words of wisdom or Advice for everyone listening.
1: Um, one. I think. If you are a friend. Of someone who's experiencing. Um, abuse. Please take note of how my friend handled it. I understand it won't always work. Um, but. He saved my life. And. It was because. He made me tell someone. No one knew what I was going through. Um, So I encourage those who are supporting people to, you know, follow those steps. Um, You know, I found myself a couple times Googling, am I in an abusive relationship? And I think if you are Googling that, you probably are. Um. And I also found myself describing our relationship as when it's good, it's really good. And when it's bad, it's really bad. And I'm learning that those, you know, intense peaks and valleys are not healthy. And that the peaks are the love bombing and the valleys are the abuse. And if that resonates with you at all, it's probably not healthy.
0: Well, July, I want to thank you for being here with me today and sharing your story, helping a lot of people. You were really vulnerable um, with with everything, and you did a a very good job. You did a really good job in explaining the little nuances, the nitty-gritty, how you were twisted around, and just really being honest with uh, how you were... um, seeing the whole entire situation um and not too many people will will um go to that let yourself be seen in that way um and thank you for coming on and also you know we we like having um therapists and people in in that world to show that it can happen to anyone and um so just really a big thank you for for being here with us all today
1: yeah. Thank you for having me. It was, it was really powerful to be able to, you know, share my story. And it's, it's been really hard for me to accept that I, I am a therapist and I got in this situation. And so I do want people to know that it can happen to anyone.
0: Do you know what this will make you? No. A better therapist.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I think it already has.
0: So a big thank you once again to July for being a guest on our show today. And if you want to be a guest like July was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there is a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page where you can read all of our instructions. Please read all of the instructions and then send us an email at narcissist apocalypse at gmail.com or just fill out our guest form page and press the submit button. Also at our website, we have our very own support group. Yes, at the top of the page at NarcissistApocalypse.com, when you click on the support group button, it takes you to our very own safe social network where we have forum boards for you to post and for people to answer. Uh, Our members of our support group are great people. We also have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, every Thursday afternoon, and every Saturday night as well. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have ad free episodes on there too. And if you really just want to support the show, because the show needs all the support it can get, just join our support group as it helps out a lot. Also, if you want to help out the show, please leave us a review if you can. A good review would be better. Um, We can never have enough reviews, enough great reviews of the show. It helps people uh, click on our show and say, hey, this show might be helpful for me. Um, It has a great rating. So please do that as well on whatever service you use. I don't think Spotify has any rankings like that. But if they do or if it's new, try to do it there. But I don't think they do. But try to do it anywhere else if you can. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone because DomesticShelters.org offers you, and it offers you an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing and they can connect you with the local resources and they can help you find ways to heal and move forward. So please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org to access this free resource today. And that is it this week for our show. So from myself and July, we hope you have a good night.